Well, if he is truly your vision this morning, then that is worship. That means that you have been meditating and thinking on him, on our God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you are ready to talk about worship this morning, and I'm glad for that. We are going to be looking at a very important passage on worship back in the Old Testament today. You can turn to Malachi. Hopefully you know where that is, and hopefully the pages of your Bibles aren't sticking together at that point, because <laughs> they've never been there. Uh, Malachi chapter 1. The last book of the Old Testament, the last of what we call the minor prophets, certainly not minor in importance, but just smaller books than the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Malachi is arguably the last book of the Old Testament, um, and it seems, uh, now last week we addressed some of the fundamental aspects of worship, the worship basics. And today we're going to be looking at, again, something a little more on, on the negative side, but this is one of the fundamental difficulty struggles that we have in worship. And after all God's people had been through, literally the Lord had to send them into exile. If you remember, the northern kingdom, of course, was dispersed throughout the whole world, never to return to this point again. The southern kingdom, Judah, was in exile. The Lord graciously brought them home. They uh, rebuilt their walls. They rebuilt the temple. They had everything they needed to worship God. Uh, they were not there. They, were, they did not have autonomy anymore. They had people ruling over them, um, masters that they were subject to, but they did have a sense of autonomy in their worship and as a people. And yet they fell to one of the difficulties that we don't understand. We struggle with today, too. In our worship, we're going to talk today about apathetic worship, worship that is half-hearted. And I think you understand we can certainly fall prey to that even today. Well, worship is, as we said, it's important. It's one of God's central commands to his people. And someone mentioned this to me this week. One of uh, my dear friends pointed this out I thought was very good. What was the only two expectations of man in the Garden of Eden? When he was created, there was really only two, to work and to worship. There was no need for mission at that point, evangelism. There's no need for that. And what will continue on, folks, in all eternity, you know, evangelism and missions will have an end, won't it? In fact, I have a quote here on that. But worship will never end. And probably the same as work. I, I believe that in the kingdom, the eternal kingdom and the millennial kingdom, we'll have things to do. And that should encourage us. Don't think um, in these movies and cartoons that we're all going to be floating on clouds strumming harps. That would be really boring for all eternity. <laughs> I do not believe that's what God has work for us to do, and it will be joyful work. But worship as well will continue throughout all eternity. So it behooves us to get it right now, right? Um, one man, uh, you may have heard of him, John Piper, a scholar, said, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate and not man. 
When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. And like I mentioned today, uh, it behooves us to do this well. And this is one common but egregious error in its apathy in worship. Just a few words that I want to discuss before I read part of the passage that you can be on the lookout for. In this passage, we're looking at verses 6 through 14. Well, here will there'll be the uh, word, the concept of fear, Hebrew morah, and that can mean fear, terror, or even more specifically in worship, awe over the majesty of God. And it's an attitude of proper reference, of reverence toward God. It is the most important attitude that we need to have toward God. And the Old Testament in particular uh, emphasizes that that it is the key to so much else in our relationship with him. It is a sense of fear from the aspect of realizing how powerful God is in his majesty and understanding that our sin can bring chastisement and discipline, not fear from the standpoint of like people with false and secular gods, where they think that they're gods, if they don't appease them every second, that that God is going to discipline them and punish them. It's not at all what we're talking about here. But it is beyond just an attitude of respect, but it's an attitude of awe, amazement, and wonder, and fear from the standpoint of being fearful of sinning before this holy God. That is a central attitude of worship, folks, that we have to have. And yet we're going to see that God's people, and, and Malachi, the prophet, uses a number of words. Instead of fearing him, they despise his offering. They despise has the idea of to make despicable, to consider something as worthless. And it's a use for people treating valuable things of God in a worthless manner. Basically, throwing them in the dust. Things that are of utmost importance. Polluted is another word, gael, be defiled, the ceremonial pollution of imperfect sacrifices and offering up worship that is less than our best. Profane, to desecrate, to render unholy or debase. And this indicates defiant and deliberate defiling of something that has been set apart as pure or holy in worship and blemished, shahat means to be utterly spoiled, offering the Lord things that are ruined or spoiled to the uttermost. And then the people of God we're going to see actually still expect that God will accept or take pleasure in their offerings. And we're going to find out they are sorely mistaken. So Malachi, the prophet, in verse 6 of chapter 1, starts out our, our passage, and he says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I then am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present it to your governor. Will he accept 
you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts, would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly? Or that, that's actually, I'm reading from the NASB there. I have a note there. Um, let's skip down to verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Lord, as a pastor here, I desire that you be feared and that you be honored. But even that, not as much as you desire that. Lord, I know that as in my fallenness, in my struggles with sin, that I still am not capable of worshiping you perfectly in the way that you desire. I do desire to teach your word and to help our folks understand what that means. And I pray that our people as well would have a desire to offer you worship that is not tarnished, that is not polluted, that is not spoiled. Lord, thankfully, we don't have to go through the bloody sacrifice of offering up animals on an altar. Jesus Christ was the final, perfect, wonderful sacrifice. But we do offer spiritual sacrifices of praise, of prayer, of attention and meditation. And those can be tarnished too. Help us to make sure that what we are offering, even right now, that what I'm preaching and that as people are listening, that we are offering you attention, the glory, the honor that you so fully deserve. Let us not disparage you or make you small in any way, but honor you and make you important in each of our lives and in the work and uh, the worship of this church this morning. We need your help for that, Lord, and we pray for that, knowing that you will help us to be successful. Help us not to be apathetic, but to be passionate in our worship. This we ask in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Apathetic worship is a problem. It was a problem for God's people in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and it's something we struggle with today. And, you know, it's something that we're, we're kind of, we tend to be good at hiding. We can come to church and we can be all dressed up and ready to serve or ready to listen and ready to pray and all these things. And yet in our hearts, weary, tired, bored, whatever. And everybody else may not know that. But as Malachi is pointing out today, God our Lord knows the reality of our worship. And he emphasizes that in verses six through eight. God knows what kind of spiritual worship we're offering him, even this morning as we listen, as we sing in all of these things. And we're going to see in verse six, he knows when we lack reverence toward him. He knows when we're not honoring him with our hearts. And so the prophet begins, he states a universally accepted expectation. I emphasize this to our sons last night that this in this culture and among God's people, he's going to put out two truths that everyone would agree with say, oh yeah, this, that's definitely true. That should always take place. Verse six, a son honors his father. That's just a, a basic truth that should happen. 
Um, and that was the expectation with God's people. And also, a servant honors his master. And the audience that Malachi is speaking to, is, is proclaiming these truths to, would have all nodded, yes, certainly. Yes, children need to honor, respect their parents. Nobody's going to argue that. Yes, servants need to respect and honor their masters. That's true. Needs to happen. And God turns it around. Okay, since I you've accepted. And um, in the proclaiming of these truths, there would have been the opportunity for God's people to say, yes, that's true. And so then God says, okay, since you have acquiesced, you have admitted that that's true, then I am your father. And where is my honor? You're so, these other truths are so important to you but you've missed the main point. You, in the most important aspect of showing honor, you have failed. You are failing. I am your father. And this beautiful picture of Yahweh as the God of Israel, certainly as the Lord of hosts, as he's going to refer to himself in a moment, but also he is their heavenly father. He is the one that deserves even more than earthly fathers, our honor and glory. And he says, where is it? You're not giving it to me. I am your master. I am your master, right? If I am your master, they have the opportunity to say, well, of course, you're our master. You're our God. And he says, where is my fear? And that is our first word there that we've already talked about, that attitude of proper reverence and awe toward God. One, um, translation, the NASB. I, I have a number of notes here. I like the way that the NASB has translated a number of, of these verses, but this one, the NASB says respect. And although respect may be a part of it, um, it it's, it's much more intense than that. It's not just that God is offering, seeking respect, but he's respecting or, or expecting fear and honor and submitting to him. And the Lord of hosts, he says here, says to you, and here we find his first audience, oh, priests, we find that he's referring to not the people, um, first and foremost, but it's the worship leaders. Can that happen? God's people are, are neglect this many times, but can the leaders also have a trouble with this? They certainly can. And until the leaders get this fixed in their own hearts. They won't be the proper example. They won't offer and they won't help God's people in the way that they need to. They won't be the examples. And here he says, the priests actually despise my name. Now, remember, we just mentioned that too. That word despise is a very strong word, baza. And it means to make despicable or consider as worthless. This is a tragedy. It's an atrocity, really. He's saying God's worship leaders don't honor or fear him, and they refuse to show the proper reverence to the Lord. One's name, especially in this culture, is one that makes, it is the name makes that person unique and distinguished. And names were very important in this culture. And when one lost the significance of their name, that was a humiliation. That would be humiliating. But then when someone's name was associated with something shameful, it was even more disgraceful to that individual. And God is saying here, his leaders, the priests, 
are making his name worthless. They're not showing it the significance it deserves, and they're even, even associating it with something shameful. They're disgracing God in their actions. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I'm sure everybody here appreciates the name that you were given. Um, I have enjoyed my name ever since growing up. That's one thing that I, I have enjoyed about myself and thankful to my mom that she gave it to me. Um, the name Brock is still rather un unique in a lot of ways, even today, although I, I do run into a few more people that, that have been called that than when I was young. When I was young, I didn't, I was like unique in the fact that I didn't know anybody else named, named Brock, and that was exciting. Well, I have noticed one thing, though, when I have encountered somebody else who has the name Brock. It was uh, when I worked at Homesat, when I first got there as a young man getting ready for seminary, and I worked um, there in graphic design to help cover the costs of my seminary degree before I'd even met Leslie. Um, there was an, another man that worked there, and he was part of the speech department there at Homesat. If you remember, Homesat is the satellite school. Uh, for Bob Jones University, and it's still used all over the world. The lessons and the, and the teachers and, and, and the uh, classes that they produced there. And one of these guys produced a lot of the speech classes and his name also was Brock. And that was just a little weird for me going into this and having in the workplace somebody else who had the same name that I did. I just wasn't used to that. And there was this young lady that lived, that, that lived that sat two cubicles over and she was one of those that always lets you know what she was thinking, whether you asked for it or not. Maybe you know some of those. And it wasn't two weeks into this, she kept on getting my name wrong. And then finally, I'm like, no, it's Brock. And she's just said in disgust, she put down her pencil and said, oh, I just can't handle two Brocks in my life. I'm just gonna have to give you another name. What's your middle name? I'm like, no, my name is Brock. You know, deal with it. It's a, I love my name. But this other Brock in particular, I, I, I've noticed this with others with my name. When they when they hear that I have their name as well, there's there's a, there's a friendliness there, but there's almost a little bit of a ah, oh, that's really weird. I don't like the fact that there's another person with with my name. And, and this Brock in particular, he was nice, but he wouldn't always interact with me a lot. It was almost kind of like that, you know. I just I like my name to be unique. I don't like to have to share it. Now, that may seem kind of petty. But when it comes to God's name, that's all important, right? God should never have to share his name with anybody. One more aspect about my name, and I'll try to, not to get into politics here, but there was a while where we had a service in our country and I remember one time a couple of people figuring out that my name kind of sounded like that particular leader. And that leader wasn't doing impressive things and was doing a lot of wrong things in our country. And they made a joke of it and said, oh, Brock. And then they mentioned that leader's name. And it was just like, oh, it's almost like I was I didn't enjoy it at all because I didn't like my name tied in with that particular person and, and how they, they were leading the country. Well, how much worse is it when we take God's name and we defile it and we tie it to things that are shameful and disgraceful? That is what God is condemning here and saying, you must not do. And yet the priests say when they when they have this um, strike or, or uh, announced against them, their response is, well, how have we despised your name? And God says, by offering 
or some versions say presenting polluted or defiled food upon my offer. And then the leaders would say, well, how have we polluted you? How have we done this? That idea of offering imperfect sacrifices. Basically, these worship leaders respond, you can't prove that, Lord of hosts. How foolish. What an awful response to wrong worship in their pride. Prove it. And of course, God knows, and he can prove it. And he says, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised or be held in contempt. Well, how did they do that? When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? He's questioning them now. They're on the, 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 the stand and they are being questioned. They question God, prove it. And God says, sure, I'll prove it. You offer blind animals and sacrifice. You offer those that are lame or sick. Is that not evil? And then he makes an illustration here. He says, would you get away with that with your rulers? If you had a ruler, and he refers to a governor, and at the, this point in Israel's history, they would have been ruled by local governors of other, other nations. And basically saying, he's saying, would you present a gift to a leader that you were trying to impress, and it be a blighted gift, or um, it be um, deficient in some way? Would you offer that, someone you're trying to impress, a leader or a ruler over you, a deficient gift, and expect that they would be pleased, that they would show you favor, that they would be impressed and do something for you in return, says the Lord of hosts. Now remember, he keeps referring to himself as the Lord of hosts. That is the Lord of all rulers, the Lord of all armies. And... Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, says, you wouldn't even do that to your rulers, and here I am, the Lord of all rulers, and you're doing it to me. You're offering sacrifices that are blighted, and these refer specifically to animals that if you go all through um, the law in Exodus and Leviticus, it describes the fact, I think we understand this, that the sacrificial animals, animals had to be without blemish. And they had to be the best that they could offer. And they're to a point now in their history, even after all that God has brought them through, and even the priests now, again, are satisfied with offering up to God something that is deficient, that is less than their best. And God says, you wouldn't even do that to your own rulers. How dare you do it to the Lord of hosts? You see, God does know the reality of our worship. He knows when we lack reverence for him. He knows when we lack concern for him and for his principles. So we may look at this and say, well, I'm so thankful we don't have to offer sacrifices like that anymore. We're off the hook. No, folks, we still offer worship to God today. It's spiritual worship. So as God is calling his leaders to examine in the Old Testament what they're offering him, are we today carefully examining what we are offering to God today in this worship service? How are your attitudes? How are your actions? Your responses? Are they blemished as we worship together today, even now? God knows we can hide it from everybody else, but God knows 
our hearts. He knows when he is receiving apathetic, deficient worship. Folks, the next part of this, God is very strong about this. He disdains our apathetic worship, and he is greatly displeased with hypocritical worship. And we see that in verses 9 and 10 here. And now, entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. Us with such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. This almost seems to be divine sarcasm, as God points out the prof through the prophet that he's the prophet is addressing wrong expectations of these worshipers. They're willing to offer less than satisfactory worship to God, and they still expect God to be pleased with it. They still expect God to show his favor in their disobedience. Verse 9, he's basically saying, and yet you offer these blemished sacrifices to me, and you still expect that you're going to get my favor. You still expect that I'm going to be gracious and be pleased with this. Now, God's grace is always towards sinners, thankfully for that. But when we uh, stubbornly do offer God worship in a way that we know he has not prescribed and still expect his favor and him to be pleased with it, folks. God disdains that. He rejects that. And he makes that clear. This is shocking in verse 10. He says, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, the doors of the temple, that you might not kinder fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Yahweh says, I'd rather someone just go and shut the temple doors, just end the whole worship system at this moment so that no more unworthy offerings can be made. And he points out that those that are offering worship apathetically, half-heartedly, without care or concern, are worshiping actually in vain. It's meaningless, their worship. God takes no delight in it. He's not pleased with it. And he also rejects half-hearted worship. Makes that clear. He would rather not have it at all. Folks, how's your worship going this morning? My prayer and hope is that God isn't looking down on Village Chapel Baptist Church and saying, you know, I'd almost rather they didn't even, they, they locked the doors this morning and didn't even worship at all because it's deficient. Now, I don't think that's the case, but there are churches worshiping all over our country and all over the world today who don't take into account God's way. God many times is looking down saying that worship is meaningless. It doesn't please me. You might as well lock the doors. It's not effective. It's hypocritical. And then in the midst of all this, though, verse 11, though, he does give us hope. Even, even uh, those of us that want to worship him in the right way, that there will be a day where he will be worshiped perfectly. Now, you remember the Sunday school when we read those verses from Revelation? Those tie into what Malachi is saying here. God looks forward to a day when there'll be more faithful, really perfect worship, and we can look forward to that too. And here he describes a perfect worship scenario that will take place in the future. For the, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, 
and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. When will this take place? Ultimately, when Jesus returns. Folks, isn't it a glorious thing to think about when Jesus returns, all the world will bow before him and they, all the people of the earth will offer right, pure worship and exalt God fully in his majesty and greatness. There won't be a carnal, sinful party type atmosphere when Jesus returns. Oh, there will be joy though. There will be happiness and gladness, but we will all worship him in the way that he expects to be worshipped. Now, he also mentions interesting here about placing incense in the offering. And you might think, well, I didn't think that sacrifices were going to take place in the eternal kingdom. Just so you understand, this wording here does not have to refer to actual sacrificial offerings. But it does refer to the pure worship offered from our hearts. In that respect, one day, Jesus will return, establish kingdom, and all worship will meet his standards and expectations. It all will, and we will all be able to do that gloriously. So folks, if that's the case, should we then think that our half-hearted, apathetic worship pleases God? No, he's going to reject it. And if one day... In the future, all people will worship God in this way. Shouldn't we desire for that to happen now? Why not get a head start? Don't wait for the future kingdom. Let's worship him in the right way now, not in boredom or weariness. And that's the last part of our message this morning in verses 12 through 14. God rejects, disdains our apathetic worship. And even more serious, God will discipline our apathetic worship. He will not accept half-hearted worship, folks. He's clear. Verse 12, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. Here we have those words again, that word profane. Remember how strong that is. That's defiant and deliberately defiling something that God has set apart as pure and holy. God said, worship this way. And his leaders, and this has in um, context as well, the people are following along in this. They profane. They're defiling what God has said is holy. Folks, can you get more of a serious sin and um, error than that to defiantly do something against what God has said and to defame or despise what he has said to do. He said, you have polluted my table, the, the table that you are offering up these sacrifice on and its fruit, that is its fruit may be despised or contemptible. The offerings that they were bringing were contemptible before them, even before the leadership and God's people. How is that? Here their apathy is really emphasized. In verse 13, and but you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it. Any of you that's heard a horse snort before, you know what this is talking about. We've all done this sooner or later with 
our very facial expressions when we're something is repugnant to us or we disdain something. We say many times that we look down our nose or somebody is looking down their nose at us. They don't like it or, oh, I don't appreciate that. It's one thing when it's about a particular meal or it still doesn't show much gratitude, right? But folks, when we look at God's commandments and what he tells us to do, and we have that kind of attitude, looking down our noses, oh, what a weariness this is. I do, I do like what the NASB says here, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord's, the Lord of hosts. The worship leaders were treating God's worship system with contempt. They were disdaining the whole thing that God had enacted, complaining about it wearisome, being wearisome. Perhaps they didn't have this word back then, but maybe they would have used it if they did. It's boring. I'm tired. Now, is that getting a little more applicable to what we face today? When we come together to worship, are we bored? Are we weary? I didn't like that song. I didn't like the way pastor prayed today. And I'm not saying that my praying is always perfect by any means. I didn't like the way that, or the preaching goes, I don't know, too long or whatever the, that, the complaint is. And we complain and we're weary. Folks, that's not right worship before God. It's not. And he says here, he doesn't accept it. They continue on. You bring what has been taken by violence or theft or is lame or sick. And this bring as your offering. They were, if we understand this correctly, it could literally be referring to stolen sacrifices that they were getting through sinful actions and then offering them up to God. Involved in sin and then offering that to God. And God says, you have polluted, you have despised, profaned, all of these strong words, my worship. And you bring this as your offering. The ESV offers an exclamation point to emphasize the greatness of the offense here. How dare you? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? And when he asks that question, he's expecting that we know what the answer is. Almost that idea, of, if you have to ask the question, you know, well, God's asking the question. Of course, the response is no, he's not going to accept that kind of half-hearted, apathetic worship. But he says he's going to discipline it. Verse 14, cursed be the cheat. Some uh, versions say deceiver who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Here he has people, whether it's the worship leaders or the people themselves, that vow that they will obey God and bring an unblemished sacrifice, and then they go ahead and bring the wrong kind of sacrifice and offering anyway, despising. And you know what he says here, really the idea in the Hebrew is not just deceiving those around him, but this has the idea of cheating. Cheating God from the worship and the glory that he deserves. This person literally becomes a glory thief. What an affront to the Lord of hosts who should expect, like we talked last week, 
our honor, our rejoicing, and our submission. And when we come before him apathetically, we're not offering him internally spiritual worship. We're cheating God, folks, of his, what is rightfully his. That's serious. Do you see how serious God intends this to be? He doesn't need our worship, but he commands and expects it. And that's what he says at the end. For I am a great king. And really what he's saying here is I am the great king above all. And it's not bragging if it's true, right? God is not bragging here. He is telling the truth. He is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of all armies, the Lord of all rulers. And he says, my name will be feared among the nations. It will happen. So you do it now because I will discipline and I will punish and I will curse those who continue not to do this right. I remember recently us getting a water, I think it was a watermelon from the store and Leslie checks over her produce very carefully, especially the watermelons. And I know there's all kinds of things you're supposed to do. You tap it just right and it gets a different sound or whatever and you've got a good one. I forget right now all the things that you're supposed to look at with that. But anyway, we, we looked this over, she looked this over, brought it home and we were excited. And we did notice it was almost hard to perceive until you turned it over, you kind of looked at it, but there was a slight brown spot on one side. Thought, well, yeah, that happens. So we, we cut open to the watermelon, the boys are all excited about it. And we realized when I got to that point that that brown spot actually um, continued through the watermelon and it got darker and darker. And by the time we opened the watermelon up, it was all watery and a good third to a half of it was spoiled. And it was a very big disappointment to our, to our guys. We, we, we made it up to them. But it, it was a melon that looked great on the outside. But on the inside, it was spoiled and it was almost useless. Folks, that can be us. We can look great on the outside. We can look like we're paying attention. We can look like we're involved in worship. And yet, just like that melon, be not offering, be offering blemished or profane or polluted worship to God. So another question, are you weary with God's way of worshiping? Are you bored, disdainful, looking down your nose on it? Do we complain about different aspects of the service rather than first? Now, this, there's a place for analyzing, and certainly God calls us to make sure our worship is the best that it can be. So there is a place to analyze and make sure we're doing that. Don't misunderstand. But complaining just for the sake of complaining because it's not what we like, it's not what we prefer, that's blemished worship. Worship. Rather, we examine our hearts to make sure that we're prepared. And that they're unblemished of selfishness and pride. Why? Because God's not fooled. He knows, as Malachi has said, he knows the quality of our worship. He knows, right? If we're here this morning and we're, we're worshiping in pride rather than what? Reverence and submission. And folks, here's the seriousness of this. Again, don't miss this. He will reject proud offerings as meaningless he would rather we didn't offer them at all but he will give grace to the humble 
to those of us who are to the best of our ability are offering right worship to him, he will accept it. He will chasten those who complain and disdain right worship. And so that means that each of us must present worship acceptable to him. A scholar that I read and studied for this had a great quote. There, Israel's failure to respond to life's trials in wisdom and faith had led to a loss of delight in the Lord that produces genuine worship. The professional minister and every believer must constantly guard against developing such a cold heart toward God that maintains toward God that maintains the activity without the gratitude and love behind it. Are you grateful this morning for what God has done for you? Do you love him for who he is? If so, you're able to offer what right worship. And let's make sure every Sunday that we're offering worship that honors God and is not profane and, and weary and half-hearted. Don't offer him apathetic worship. Lord, we need this. This is such a common problem with our worship. I pray for myself included that you would start with me, that you would help me to always be ready to worship with energy and joy and appreciation. Help us to be prepared, even before we come, to have this kind of attitude. Lord, if we do, if we're here this morning and we are weary or bored just because for selfish reasons, then Lord, we know that you will still offer a way for us to Repent, to get right with you, and to offer you the worship that you deserve. Thank you that you are a gracious God that allows us to change and that gives us what we need to change. So help us to have a passion and fervor, reverence and awe for you as we worship together. And this we need, and we ask for your help. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.